Well, good morning to you. Uh, if we've not had the privilege of, of meeting before, my name is Matt Lemoyne. I serve as the pastor of Liberty Church, and it would be an honor to meet you today if uh, today's your first time or if we've just never gotten to connect. Uh, I try to always make my way to the back, uh, and there's always kind of a log jam of traffic back there. So um, if we've not gotten a chance to meet, we'd love to remedy that uh, today. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 12. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, that Rachel mentioned just a moment ago, page 8 uh, is where you will find that, 8 and 9. Uh, and so if you don't have one of those hardcover Bibles, it's, it's at the very, very beginning of your Bible. Page 8 and 9 probably made that, made that obvious. But A couple weeks ago, uh, we began a, a new series studying the life of Abraham. We're going to spend the summer uh, really between Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 25. And when we kicked off that series a couple weeks ago, I said that uh, when we consider Abraham's life, and especially this will be true if, you, if you've only known Abraham through like a Sunday school, uh, vacation Bible school kind of lens, that when we consider Abraham's life, we'll, we'll be both scandalized and encouraged. We're going to be scandalized because this hero of the faith, he's described in the Bible as the man of faith, he has some incredibly unheroic moments, and we're going to see some of those today. But we'll also be encouraged because it's actually, in a unique way, those unheroic moments that force us to take Abraham off of a pedestal, and then rather than just seeking to emulate him, just to follow him as an example, to actually look through Abraham and look through his life and see behind him the powerful hand of God at work. If you're a fan of uh, literature or, or movies or TV series, uh, a fairly recurring storyline that you will encounter is that of the evil twin, the evil twin. Uh, there's like the protagonist who's trying to make the world a better place, uh, trying to help uh, people and care for people. And then there's a, the protagonist evil twin who just wants to watch the world burn. Certain stories uh, even have entire alternate universes where everybody has their own evil twin. So if any Star Trek fans are out there, uh, there's a, a series of episodes that are about the mirror universe and each character has like their mirror person, their evil twin in the other universe. The way that you can tell um, Spock, good Spock, apart from evil Spock, uh, is that good Spock is clean-shaven and evil Spock has a goatee. So really what I'm trying to tell you is that it's, you know, this beard, it's not been Pastor Matt for like the last couple months. This is, this is Pastor Matt's evil twin, Pastor Pat, or whatever you want to call me. In Genesis 12, Abraham's actions, and we'll see this in a moment as we read it, his actions in the first half of the chapter, there's such a contrast to his actions in the second half that you'll find yourself wondering how this could be the same person. When they travel down to Egypt because of a famine, it's almost like the, the goateed, evil twin version of Abraham shows up and steps in and takes over in the story. But it's still very much Abraham, and that actually is exactly why this will resonate with you and me. Because are we not people of incredible inconsistency. Right? We, we are selfless one day and selfish the next. We're generous one day, we're stingy the next. We're patient and then we're impatient. We're pure with our eyes and with our minds and then the next day we're filled with lust. We're calm and then we're angry. We're humble and then we're arrogant. We're joyful and then we're despairing. So our lives are this inconsistent mixture of moments of great faith and great faithlessness. So was Abraham's. And what that means is that from the first moment 
that God set apart a people for himself, those people were inconsistent. They were an inconsistent people. And therefore, a people that could never rely upon their own efforts or even their designation as those people who were blessed by God. They could never rely on those things. Instead, their lives, our lives, and Abraham's life from the very beginning become opportunities for us to glimpse the powerful faithfulness of God. And so I invite you now to listen ear, listen with open ears to this book that we love. Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to start in verse 4 and read through verse 20. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe, and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and your glory in all that we do. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we'll spend our time this morning really talking about these two things, Abraham's faith and Abraham's faithlessness. So first, let's talk about Abraham's faith. The, the second half of this text is so shocking that it's completely possible to to fly past and miss the boldness of Abraham's faith in the first half. Remember, Abraham has no guarantee but God's promise. He's not from a God-fearing family. Uh, He's not anchored in roots of faith in the one true God. He's from a pagan family in a pagan place. And he's called out from among all of the scattered peoples of the earth to be the one through whom God is going to bless the world. So here's how I will define faith in light of Genesis chapter 12. Faith is an obedient abandonment of the past 
through confidence in God's promises for the future. It's an obedient abandonment of the past through, through confidence in God's promises for the future. Let's walk through that just a little bit. Verse 4 says, Abraham went. And that word went is the very same word that God first spoke to Abraham when he called him, the word go. So we saw a couple weeks ago that there's actually a long delay from when God first calls Abram in the land of Ur and when he actually does go into the land of Canaan. But the point is that ultimately he did obey. God said, go to this land that I will show you, verse 4, so Abraham went. Obedience is not a, a popular word or concept today, really in any stretch of the imagination. And not that it's really ever been particularly popular, but among Christians today, it seems like there's this choice we have to make between being people of faith or grace or love on the one hand and people of obedience on the other hand. It seems like the word obedience only gets associated ever with legalism, uh, with rules, with heavy-handed uses of authority, things like that. But in reality, all of these things are interconnected. Obedience and faith are actually inseparable. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says that, that his very purpose as an apostle, what he's been given grace from God to do, is to proclaim the gospel to the world in order to bring about what he calls the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. So faith divorced from obedience isn't really faith. It's just wishful thinking. James, the brother of Jesus, actually devotes a lot of his letter to that very concept. An author, a speaker named Francis Chan, I know some of you are familiar with him, he shares a great illustration of this. He says it's a little bit like telling his daughter to go clean her room. And so she disappears for a couple hours. She comes back, and she comes back to him and says, Dad, I really thought a lot about what you said. I actually memorized it. You said, go and clean your room. And a little bit later, some of my friends are going to come over. We're going to study what it would actually look like for me to, to be a person who cleans my room. And, and maybe I'll even learn it in Greek or Hebrew in a different language and be able to tell it to you that way. And his point in that, of course, is it's only obedience if she actually cleans her room. As much as it's a good thing to study and memorize and, and consider the word of God, are we actually people of, of obedience? And the Bible commends Abraham not only for his faith, which is primarily how we know him, it also commends Abraham for his obedience. And in fact, we would never see Abraham held up as the example that he is. He would never have been commended for his faith if he had merely heard the word of God, contemplated it, and said, okay, God, I believe you, and then remain anchored in Ur or in Haran. So obedience is where, the, is where the rubber meets the road. And therefore, there is always a cost to faith. It's, it's never merely just a change in the way that we are thinking, although those, those can have costs at times too. It's always a change of life as well. And a scholar named Bruce Waltke puts it this way. He says, faith demands a ruthless abandonment of the past. Faith demands a ruthless abandonment of the past. And that's where I'm grabbing that, that part of my definition of faith, that faith is an obedient abandonment of the past. That's really easy to see in Abraham's story, in his life. He leaves his homeland, he leaves everything that he's ever known, and God is the only guarantee of security and safety for his future. Some of you see this very same thing in your own life and in your own story. 
especially if your life now as a Christian looks about as opposite as it could from your life before you were a Christian. When I hear that phrase, uh, a ruthless abandonment of the past, I immediately think of an acquaintance of mine who lives back in Kansas City who grew up in a devout Muslim family in the Middle East. And maybe some of you know people who were, were Muslims once and then have left that to become Christians. But his life is about just as much uh, just as much of a departure from his former life as you can, can imagine. A lot of his family rejected him when he became a Christian. Uh, he was disowned by them. He was labeled an apostate by his former faith. He's now living in a new nation with a new language and new customs and traditions. So there is very little in his life that looks the same today as it did a couple decades ago. But even if it's not that extreme in terms of outward circumstances... Faith is always a ruthless abandonment of the past. And so maybe for you, that past is, is more and more of, of self-reliance or a humanistic morality. You just were a good person who tried to do good things. And if that's the case, then your life outwardly now might not look all that different from what it looked like before you were a follower of Jesus. And what I would say to you is, don't downplay or despise your story if that's your story. Instead, allow those with stories like Abraham has to illustrate what must always be true of faith, that we are not who we were. Whether outwardly we look very similar or completely different, we are not who we were. And we've bid farewell to our former ways, these futile ways of life and of worship. And we've set out on a new course, responding in obedience to the God who has called us out. Question for you this morning. Where in your life will continued obedience require more abandonment of your past? For you, where will continued obedience to God require more abandonment of the past? Where are you still rooted in places that are contrary to the call of God? Now, this usually doesn't mean that you, that you cut ties or cut off relationships with people from your past, but it often does mean you change the way you interact with people from your past. It's been a long process uh, for me personally with some friends that I've had since middle school and, and high school. Uh, the way that we did friendship, I'm sure it's not hard to imagine this, was incredibly immature when we were in middle school and high school. Essentially, all we did was make fun of each other. And kind of the goal of hanging out was like, don't be the one that gets targeted today. Don't be the one that gets made fun of the most uh, in, in our time hanging out today. And for years afterward, Whenever we'd get together to hang out, we'd revert right back to that mode of acting. Uh, I've heard somebody describe it before. Here's a TV show, Revertigo, when you just go back to the way you used to act around these certain people. I don't know, maybe you can relate to that when you hang out with certain people in your life. But that's not me loving them well. That's not me being an actual friend to them if I revert back to that. That's not me being a real friend really in, in any kind of way. And so I need to renounce that part of my past and by faith, see those grow up into mature adult friendships. So what is it for you? Are, you? are you holding on to part of your past that's preventing you from obeying in faith? And it could be so many different things. It was hard to try to pick a few examples, but, but maybe it's something you consume, like certain kinds of TV shows or movies or things like that. Maybe it's something like alcohol. And it's not that Christians can't drink, but the question we've got to ask is, is why are we drinking? And is it the same reason that we used to drink before we were following Jesus? 
or is, is consuming alcohol in some way perpetuating some form of immaturity in us. It makes our tongue a little loose, and we start to, to revert back to a way we used to talk about people. We get more critical or more demeaning or more crude in our, in our language. Or maybe alcohol serves as a means of escape instead of us relying on God. We start to rely on a substance of some kind. Maybe it's not something you consume at all for you. Maybe instead, it's a, it's a type of generational sin. I know families, I'm sure you know families, maybe this is part of your family, where there's all kinds of generational issues get handed down from parents to kids, generation after generation. So I know families where the men, for generations, have been serial adulterers. Or families where anger, or arrogance, or laziness, or perfectionism are handed down from parents to kids with no end. Now, you have no control over what you were born into. But that, but that doesn't excuse us from the responsibility of how we respond to what we're born into. And this is what I would encourage you to see today if you see something like that in your life. Whatever that specific thing is, with his eyes of mercy and compassion on you, Jesus calls you out of that. Jesus calls you out of that. Faith is an obedient abandonment of those things in our past that prevent us from following the call of God. The only thing that fuels that kind of faith is confidence that there's something better. That's the last part of this definition of faith. Confidence that there's something better. That's why Abraham goes, because God has promised him something so much better than he has imagined or experienced in his life leading up to that point. And here in verse 7, God confirms his promise to Abraham. Abraham, this is the land I told you I was going to show you. Now that you're here, let me confirm this is it. And you will have a family. You will become a great nation. You will possess this land. We, we have no idea how much of the better that we will actually experience in our lifetime. And it might be years. It might be decades before we ever see any of that. Even more difficult, and we see this in Abraham's life too, we might never experience some of it. In Abraham's case, it's going to be years before Isaac is born. And then when Abraham dies years after that, the only part of the promised land that he owns is the cave that he is buried in next to his wife. It's the only part of the promised land Abraham has and owns in his lifetime. But that's faith. Confidence in a better future, even when you don't get to experience all of that future. Even when the relationships don't fully heal or the consequences of your past decisions don't fully go away. Or your kids still, in spite of all of your efforts and all of your desires not to pass down some of that generational sin, your kids still pick up some of it. This is why it's faith and not sight and not complete fulfillment. And it's this kind of faith that we see puts Abraham at the center of God's redemptive story and his work in the world. It's this kind of faith that sets the paradigm for God's people for all time. And it's this kind of faith that's celebrated in Scripture and held up to us, presented to us as an example for us to follow. As the author of Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
That's the faith of Abraham. That's not the only thing, though, that's in Genesis 12, is it? So second, let's talk about the other side that we see here, Abraham's faithlessness. Severe famine comes to the land. And so Abraham travels southward to Egypt. And he's never explicitly prohibited from going to Egypt. God never tells him, hey, don't go to Egypt. But because he's being led along by God in the promised land, he's, he's building these altars in these different places through the promised land. He's worshiping God there. And he never gets a direct command from God to go. We kind of get the sense from Genesis 12 that this is Abraham taking matters into his own hands, which he does over and over again throughout the course of his life. And this is just the first of a series of faithless acts from Abraham that follow. So one of them, he fears men more than he fears God. So this whole scheme that he concocts here, he does that because he's afraid of what the Egyptians are going to do to him. And he quickly abandons that promise that he just received from God, who's God's going to bless those who bless him and God's going to curse those who dishonor him. And so Abraham says, well, I don't know if that's actually true. I'm going to take matters into my own hands to to create some kind of scheme to protect myself. Abraham deceives. When you strategically omit key pieces of the truth, that's deceit. Half-truths are are not the truth. And we, we all agree with that when it's like people giving that to us, and then we all like maybe don't quite agree when it's us giving that to others. We find out a few chapters later, Sarah is indeed Abraham's half-sister. They have the, the same father, but, the different, but a different mother. And at this point in time, I know like we hear that and we're like, wow, that sounds like some West Virginia stuff going on there. It kind of gives you a picture of Abraham. That's our, that's our cultural lens on this. This was before the law of Abraham came that, pro, that, that prohibited that. So there's no moral judgment given about marrying your half-sister at this point in time in, in God's revelation and, his, and his, the history of that. But to only call Sarah his sister is far from the truth. And then he asks Sarah to engage in the very same deception that he's scheming here. Not only deceiving then, through his passivity, Abraham exploits his wife's beauty for his own gain. I'm going to give Abraham the benefit of a doubt here. I don't think he went into Egypt intending to prostitute his wife. I think that Abraham's intention here was that by claiming to be Sarah's brother, he would put himself in a situation where he could fend off potential Egyptian suitors. If he's the husband, then he's going to get killed so someone else can marry her. If he's the brother, then they're not going to kill him. They're going to try to to woo him and, and, and convince him that he should let his sister marry them. And I think his scheme was that he would buy some time for them and allow them to get some food while sojourning in Egypt and then escape from Egypt with their marriage intact. So think of it this way. Well, let me say this. I, he, he clearly knows that the Egyptians are going to see Sarah and, and recognize her beauty. I don't think he foresaw that Pharaoh, that, that word would get all the way up to Pharaoh and that Pharaoh then would take her into his, into his harem. So, so another way to think of it is this. Don't think of Abraham as like a sex trafficker or like a pimp of his wife. Think of him instead as, as a, a scared man who just has a terrible plan. That, that's, more, that's more faithful, I think, to who Abraham is. But then worse than just having a terrible plan, he never intervenes. He never intervenes. 
He doesn't object. He doesn't come clean when it does escalate. He lets Pharaoh take Sarah as a wife while enjoying the good treatment and the fortune that come his way. And rather than stepping in, he steps back and he ends up exploiting his wife's beauty for his own gain. So if all you've ever known of Abraham is that he's a hero of the faith, don't miss how unheroic this is. This is the antithesis of heroism. You might find yourself asking, as I do when I read this text, did Pharaoh have a sexual relationship with Sarah? What actually happened there? And we're not told definitively one way or the other, but the evidence, my opinion, indicates that they did. Abraham actually does this exact same thing, if you can believe it, a few years after this, and he lies about Sarah being his sister again, and Sarah ends up getting married to a man named Abimelech. But in that instance, which we'll get to in Genesis chapter 20, it says that before anything happened, God's intervened, God stopped Abimelech from touching Sarah. We don't get that same thing here in Genesis 12. And sometimes when scripture is silent, its silence speaks really loudly. And I think that's the case here. Especially if that's true, then Abraham has not only passively encouraged his wife's adultery, he's not only treated her as expendable and exploited her beauty, he's also then jeopardized God's call to make him into a great nation with offspring that are going to inherit this promised land. Are you feeling the, the contrast between Abraham at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10? What we're forced to wrestle with when we read Genesis 12 is how is this the same person? How can someone who, who offers such costly obedience, abandoning his past, such confidence in God and God's promises, turn around and then fear men more than he fears God and deceive and exploit his own wife through his passivity and show no regard at all, seemingly, for God's promises. How is this the same person? How could he do that? Well, how do you do it? How do I do it? Isn't this you and me? When we take stock of our own lives, isn't this our story? Moments of beautiful and bold faithfulness and other moments of devastating and brazen faithlessness. How is it possible that you and I can be such this crazy mixture of faith and faithlessness? And it's because, not that the decisions of our lives don't matter, but, but our lives in both our faith and our faithlessness are meant to point to something more and something greater than ourselves. Our lives are meant to be a window through which we ourselves and others around us perceive the work of God. So don't hear me in any way excusing Abraham's horrible actions here. And by extension of that, don't hear me excusing mine or excusing yours. But if you or I were perfectly faithful, if we were perfectly consistent and perfectly obedient, would we not begin to view ourselves or to view people living that way as the hero of the story? These utterly unheroic moments in our lives, the inconsistency, the, the faithlessness in our lives, they are inescapable reminders that we constantly need someone greater to work for us on our behalf. If your hope in this life is your consistency, then you are going to be hopeless. 
And if the people of God by themselves are the hope of the world, then this world will have no hope. But what we see in Genesis 12 is that through both Abraham's faith and his faithlessness, God is consistently faithful in a way that we will never be in this life. Look at how God acts and intervenes throughout this story. He confirms his promises. He appears to Abraham one of three times that he appears to him in such a significant way. And he gives this direct and clear revelation. Abraham, you are on the right road. You're following me. You are exactly where you're supposed to be. We, we like this part of God's action and God's intervention in Abraham's life. But God also introduces suffering and trial. There's this famine in the land. And we don't like it when God intervenes and that means suffering and, and trial for us. Why can't Abraham just carry on indefinitely in the promised land? I mean, he's already gotten there. He's already starting to kind of survey it and make the rounds to these different places within the promised land. Why can't he just stay? Have you ever thought that about your life? You, you feel like you get to a good spot finally. You're like, why can't God just leave me alone? And the answer is, is because that's the definition of hell. That's the definition of hell. To be left alone by God, to be separated from his care, that's not a good and comfortable life. That's what hell is. You don't want God to leave you alone. And though it never feels like this in the moment, it is so much better for God to introduce suffering and trials into our lives because it's those trials, it's that suffering that creates in us these reactions of faith at times and faithlessness at times. And through all of that brings us back over and over again to put our confidence in God and not ourself and not our circumstances. Faith is, is easy when it's theoretical, when it's untested, when it's void of trials or suffering. So if you ask me today, if I have faith that God's going to provide, it'd be easy for me to say yes. But that's because my bills are all paid right now, at least most of them. I have a mortgage that's never going to be paid. Um, but they're largely paid right now, and I know where my next meals are coming from. But ask me that again when I've been out of work for a year. See what my response sounds like in that moment. My response then will probably sound a lot more faithless but paradoxically, it's actually in that moment that real, tested faith is being formed. Not when life and circumstances are easy, but when they're hard. Right? You, you don't want God to leave you alone, even when that looks like the kind of suffering and trial that Abraham walks into here. How else does God act and intervene? When we are faithless, God intervenes by both permitting consequences and by protecting us from consequences. And it's always in different ways, and it's always to different degrees. So if you try to come up with a formula for how much is he going to permit versus how much he's going to protect, you won't, you won't find one. But think of, some of, think of some of the faithless decisions and choices you've made in your life. Think of some of the worst faithless decisions you've made and in that, you will see, if you step back, you will see both God permitting certain consequences and protecting you from others. If you've largely been protected from devastating consequences of your sin, then be grateful for that. But I would call you to this. Don't get too comfortable distancing yourself from people whose lives are in shipwreck right now. Because 
as these inconsistent mixtures of faith and faithlessness, none of us is really that different from anybody else. Sometimes God spares us from what could be far worse. And so some years after this, as I mentioned, Abraham again does the same thing, lies about Sarah being his sister. She gets married to Abimelech, but God intervenes earlier and stops Abimelech from touching Sarah. Other times, like this instance, God is going to care for you through the consequences. Sometimes God is going to allow you to experience the pain and the brokenness and the weight of that faithlessness. And, and, and certainly not as fully as possible. Right? Often, God still protects you from things go, from going as badly as they possibly could. And so when Abraham is passive here, just stepping back and allowing this to happen, God intervenes and sends plagues on Pharaoh. And Sarah doesn't get pregnant with Pharaoh's child. Think about how devastating to another level that would have been. And she's released from Pharaoh's harem. Pharaoh in this story is uncharacteristically merciful and lenient. And so rather than killing Abraham, which is probably what he would do or should have done, he deports him. And as it says at the end of this chapter, he leaves Egypt with a lot more money and possessions than when he came to Egypt. Now that would have been a radical part of this story for the original Israelite audience. Right? Reading Genesis, it's the same set of books that also Exodus is part of. We heard today in the scripture before our time of confession a little bit more about that story. To hear an Egyptian pharaoh as the voice of morality, as the picture of mercy, while Abraham, the father of Israel, the father of faith, is the one who's silent, would be a radical picture for them. So God intervenes and protects Abraham through an incredibly unlikely source. Though they are protected from this being as bad as it possibly could, Abraham and Sarah have some serious baggage to work through after their time in Egypt. Think about what that journey out of Egypt and back into the promised land is going to look like and sound like and feel like for them. There's consequences to the faithlessness. And this is a little bit of conjecture on my part, but I don't think it's stretching far at all. It makes complete sense to me that this kind of baggage that we first see here is the same kind of baggage that surfaces a few years later when Sarah says, you know what, I don't think God's going to provide a child for me. Here's my maid. Have a family, have a child with her. And then a few years after that, when Abraham treats her, presents her as an eligible bachelorette one more time, this baggage surfaces over and over again in their lives. And you will never read a book or go to a marriage conference where like Abraham and Sarah are held up as like the picture of a flourishing and, and thriving marriage. All that to say, I don't know where you find yourself this morning. You could, you could have walked in here this morning, heart fill, full of faith, right? Feeling like Abraham in the first half of Genesis chapter 12. You might have walked in here this morning like Abraham at the end of Genesis 12, 20. Overwhelmed by your faithlessness. Either way, church, May you put your confidence not in yourself, but in God. And may you see in the life of Abraham that wherever you find yourself today, full of faith or full of faithlessness, that God is in it. And he is present with you. And that the greatest moments of your life and the worst moments of your life, they're all going to be worthwhile if they serve as the window to see the God who is there. With every good intention, we will be people of beautiful faith 
and brazen faithlessness. We will weave in and out of those things at times in almost a schizophrenic, evil twin kind of way. But God will remain faithful. And to our faith, God will respond by confirming his promises. He will say, you are on the right road, keep on it. To our faithlessness, God will respond by permitting certain consequences and protecting us from others. But through it all, we will see more and more clearly that our lives point to one who is greater than ourselves. There will come a son of Abraham who is completely and perfectly faithful and obedient and consistent. There will come one who does not falter, who has not one single unheroic moment in his life. But he will be no mere son of Abraham. Truly, he will be the son of God. And not in ourselves, and not in any examples of men and women that have gone before us, even if they're called the man of faith, but in God himself and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we will find salvation. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are that greater son of Abraham, the one who obeyed perfectly and was perfectly faithful as he and all of his descendants, both physically and spiritually, have been since. We confess this morning, God, we are a crazy, inconsistent mixture of faith and faithlessness. And so I pray this morning that as we come to this table, that if we come with hearts full of faith, we would see here you have made good on your promise and you have fulfilled them in Jesus. And that our hearts would be strengthened to again respond in faith every single moment of our lives. If we come this morning faithless, may we see in this table you are faithful and you fulfilled your promise even when we were not. And our confidence, Jesus, our hope is in you and not ourselves. Would you make us faithful but when we are not, would our hope be in you? Amen.